0: In 1902, the premiere of Debussy's opera Pélias et Mélisande in Paris made a great stir, and the question was, what would he write next? A symphony, perhaps? Well, yes and no. Over the next two years, he wrote La Mer, not exactly a symphony, but three symphonic sketches. Maybe the first Paris audience in October 1905 was alerted by the word sketches, not to expect anything too conventional. Even so, they must have found those opening bars pretty confusing. We can now see they contain three strands of sound. At the bottom, double basses and timpani. Above them, cellos and harps have the same two notes as each other, but in different rhythms, while the harps rock gently The cellos have a short note followed by a much longer one, what's called a Scotch snap. And finally, above them, violas play a sort of rising arpeggio, nothing you could call a tune. all very vague and mysterious, but we can't help hearing that the rising viola line somehow grows out of what came before it, even if we'd be hard-put to say what Debussy has done exactly. After those three textures, Debussy next explores three types of line, firstly on oboe, clarinet and bassoons. A tune? Hardly. Memorable? I would say so. And as much as anything through its placing, after the sombre monochrome of the string opening, suddenly a shaft of sunlight. The second of the three types of line comes on the strings, tremolando. four descending notes of a scale, again hardly a tune. But Debussy now combines these first two types of line to make a third, the up-down wave-like shape of the woodwind idea, with the four descending notes of the Tremolando strings. At last, the blurred images of the opening seem to have come into focus to make something we might call a tune. And it's tempting to give that phrase a name, The Waves Lament, or some such. It has a wonderfully floating, flexible quality, again pretty disconcerting for those early audiences who were used to a musical idea that said, I am a theme, take note. The flexibility and mild uncertainty come partly from it being not a four-bar, but a five-bar phrase and from it being built, not of four, but of three elements. Up... Down... and curl round for the ending. So, already in less than a minute, Debussy has explored not only the usual techniques of turning one pattern into another, but the idea of asymmetrical threeness. In music, as in much of the rest of our environment, things seem more regular and manageable if they come in twos or fours. Here the five bars and three sections of Debussy's phrase make it unpredictable and unsettling. Through this irregularity he opens a window onto the whole fluid immensity and unmanageability of the sea. And all the time there are little crescendos and diminuendos, little swells, as phrases and fragments emerge from the texture and then sink back into it. A tremendous amount happens in these twenty-one bars. But at the same time, Debussy is telling us, you ain't heard nothing yet. Astonishing, isn't it, how Debussy brings all those fragmentary ideas together into a coherent whole, just as all those separate waves, each with its own life, make up something we call the sea. One of the many facets of Debussy's genius was knowing how not to go too far. He realised there was a limit to an audience's patience with hearing just fragments, however cleverly strung together. So, with the sea-like character of the piece now established, he gives us a tune on four horns, muted, and marked expressive and smooth. This horn tune is interesting because it's not in a major or minor scale, but in a special mode. Not a mode we might recognise either, perhaps from folk music or ancient chant, but one built on the natural intervals of the harmonic series. That's to say, with the fourth note sharpened, and with the seventh note, the last but one, flattened. One more thing before we hear the tune itself. How many sections does it have? Yes, three. And it's not a four-bar phrase, but a six-bar. The feel of that tune is another kind of irregularity, like the ubiquitous threes. It doesn't have the sense of direction we get from more traditional harmonic movement, so once more, we're unsure of where we're heading. Understandably, Debussy is not prepared to use such a marvelous tune just once, and in the course of this first movement, it comes—you've guessed it—three times. At first, the rest of the orchestra take a few moments to collect themselves like that curious emptiness you feel after the breaking of a particularly large wave. But the last time the trumpets follow at once with their lament. do you hear that trumpet phrase? A continuation? An interruption? A correction? I dare say we all hear it differently. At all events it provokes an outburst of rhythmic and textural activity, one of the most extraordinary passages of early twentieth-century music, taking us to the brink of chaos. There are in fact six patterns going on simultaneously. As we did at the very start, let's hear the build-up from the bottom. First, regular crotchets on the double basses. Above those three notes, eight notes on harps and cellos. Between those two strands, syncopated notes on horns. And above all those, fluttering sounds on upper strings. and, against all that, wave-shapes in the woodwind. Meanwhile, the trumpets are sounding their lament in yet another rhythm. Let's go back a little way, and hear how first the horn-tune, then the trumpet-continuation, supported by this highly complex texture, together drive towards the climax of the whole paragraph, the point where everyone joins in for the breaking of the great wave, followed by a slow dissolution. By this point, Debussy has shown us something of the sea-like qualities his orchestra is capable of—mystery, power, complexity, even essence. Now he plays another card from his hand. You know the feeling when you come round a headland and suddenly there, laid out in front of you, the sea? First of all you think, wow! Then slowly you start to analyse the components. The impetus of that dotted rhythm carries the music onwards in the nearest to a conventional symphony we've heard so far. So here are two more properties of the sea, the capacity to arouse wonder and a long-term energy. may be becoming clear to you by now, as it may have been to those first audiences, that if you were expecting a traditional sonata-form first movement, you've got a long way ahead of you. Instead, I would say Debussy is balancing energy against contemplation, movement against stillness, if you like, waves against troughs. The dotted rhythm goes on for some time, but gradually the earlier contemplative material begins to infiltrate. It's split up between woodwind and brass, and just as no one wave is ever exactly the same as another so here the shapes are all slightly different though you can hear they're all based on the tune i called the wave's lament the dotted rhythm is still going on in the strings but eventually this contemplative material wins out and we reach the extreme still point of the movement We're near the end of this first movement now, so perhaps it's not too early to tell you that Debussy gave it a descriptive title, From Dawn to Midday on the Sea. The mysterious signs of the opening were dawn, fair enough, and we'll come to midday in a moment, but I think you've heard already that the progress, from one to the other, has been patchy, which, for Debussy, used to the climate of northern Europe, was real life. Now the wind drops and I'm fairly sure this is the passage Eric Saty was referring to when he said he especially liked the bit between half-past ten and a quarter to eleven. But to begin with, we'll hear it not quite as Debussy wrote it. If you know La Mer, that may have had you jumping up and down, but even if you don't, I wonder whether the colour there sounded quite right. I substituted a clarinet for Debussy's corps anglais. Here's what it should sound like. Better? Yes, I think so, although it's difficult to say why. The truth is that La Mer is just not a very clarinet piece. Debussy's sea is coloured rather by oboe, cor anglais, muted trumpet and horns. Maybe it's because clarinets and flutes don't have the same kind of unrefined open-air sound of the other instrument, or that they don't have the same kind of haunting melancholy, evoking the power and mystery of the sea. Whatever you think, instrumental colour is a crucial part of this work, not just something tacked on to a piano's score. For the second and last time in the movement, as you've just heard, energy dissolves, and again a new theme fills the vacuum. So what sort of midday does Debussy give us? A bit hazy at first, and then a blaze of sunshine. Some of the material's familiar, including the short long rhythm from the very opening, But the real treat is a new theme, which we can fairly describe as a chorale. Is midday, then, the spiritual goal the movement's been aiming at? The trumpets take off their mutes at last, so maybe it is. But listen to what happens to the triumphant final chord. the triumphant ending we were expecting, at the last moment a cloud comes over the midday sun. I suppose the basic challenge Debussy faced in writing a work called The Sea was to marry the need to be descriptive and picturesque with the need to compose something that was structurally coherent. This aborted triumph is one of the many moments that managed to do both—clouds across the sun, if you like, but also leaving himself the option of a truly fulfilled climax later on at the end of her work, perhaps. The second movement is a scherzo, to calls it je de vague, wave games. Like the first movement, it begins as a kind of amorphous blur, Whereas the first movement began as a low amorphous blur, this movement begins as a high one. The whole sound spectrum has been moved up an octave or more. Out go the four low T's, trombones, tuba, timpani and tam-tam, and in come triangle and glockenspiel. And what a difference the glockenspiel makes. Here are the first four bars without it. and now those same four bars with the glockenspiel. Just four notes, but a new world of sound. If you accept my idea that the first movement ended with a chorale, with all the religious connotations that has, then you might say this scherzo shows the secular side of the sea. You don't play wave games in church, or at least not beyond a certain age. So there's a feeling of liberation about this movement, of light, air, spray. So much so that, even after nearly a hundred years, few analysts can agree about the form of the movement. I hear the first part of it as a succession of games. First, am I a theme? The Corps Anglais plays this one immediately after the amorphous introduction we've just heard. Well, is it a theme? Like so many in this work, it just peters out, and this despite a sort of encouragement from the flute at the end, which introduces a new game, Am I a Line? Here's the flute part at half speed. And here are flute and anglais together. So is it a line? Well, as often in La Mer, the answer is yes and no. Flute and cor anglais play more or less the same notes, but not quite. The posh name for this is heterophony. It's a line, but a disturbed line, pleading for someone to come and rescue it. And how is this done? Simply by having another go. That doesn't work either. How about if we start again with a couple of trills? Might that lead to something more permanent? brushed aside by the two harps. Perhaps it's a game of patience. One day, with luck, it'll come out. The horns decide to try their luck against the dismissive harps. That's better, but possibly a corporate effort is what's required. So, Debussy tries pass the parcel. Let's follow the parcel on its travels. More evidence there of Debussy pulling the rug from under our feet, this time in his orchestration. We're never quite sure where or when that tune's going to appear next. It brings us to the first appearance in this movement of unmuted trumpets, which may alert us to a change in the atmosphere. I hear them asking, when is one of us going to have a go? Let's join that passage a little further on, on full orchestra this time, going on to the point where the trumpets get their wish. the appearance of the school bully in the playground. Even the orchestra doesn't know how to respond. Oboes and cor anglais can only echo the end of the trumpet phrase. So far, the whole movement, really, has been not only about games, but about failure. Failure to find any kind of satisfactory conclusion to any single idea. They either peter out, or they're interrupted. Debussy felt this was as far as he could go with this process. Something more tangible was now called for, something with more swing to it, a long swell after all these tiddly waves. And the whole central part of this movement is taken up by another kind of game, a dance. Take your partner's. there it all breaks up again. For a moment we seemed to have reached the most solid footing so far—regular rhythm and unambiguous harmony, supported by a long pedal note in the basses. Dissolution, coalescence, dissolution—the life of the ocean wave. But also a valid process for writing music, as Debussy proves. Not that he threw all the old rules out of the window. One of the strongest musical traditions was the importance of this progression. There the bass B moves to E, dominant to tonic. Debussy had a chance to use this progression quite early on in this second movement, where the harps were trying to sweep the horns out of the way. The cellos are playing a low B, the dominant and there's a chance they could then move to the tonic E. But do they?' Instead they slide down chromatically and end up not on E but somewhere quite different. However, as with failures elsewhere, this gives Debussy the opportunity to obey the rules later on for the movement's final cadence, a wonderful moment which grounds the dissolving fragments on muted trumpet, piccolo, flute and glockenspiel. A magical sound. But even if we've never heard La Mer before, and know nothing about it, I think it's clear the piece can't end here. We haven't found our way back to the first movement key, for one thing, but surely we also need another movement to balance the first one. Debussy agreed. And a look at the orchestral lineup for it shows something of what's in store. Back come the four low T's—trombones, tuba, timpani, tam-tam—plus two low newcomers— double bassoon and bass-drum. But also the glockenspiel stays from the second movement, so on the textural front at least it's a familiar pattern, with a last movement acting as a compendium of the previous ones. And as with the first two movements, Debussy announces immediately what kind of piece this is going to be, partly through the use of these low instruments. But that's not the whole story. Debussy called this movement Dialogue of the Wind and Sea, so we might expect a certain amount of toing and fraying between ideas. It would be tidy, wouldn't it, to have one idea representing wind and one representing sea. Here's the full version of the passage we've just heard. So are the strings there being wind or sea? And just to complicate matters, some people think that last wind phrase depicts seagulls screaming. Well, personally, I don't think Debussy wanted to be tied to any detailed representations. But the general notion of conflict is unmistakable, I'd say. And of course conflict needs to be resolved, but not immediately. If there's one thing that marks Debussy out as a revolutionary, it's his perception of all the different ways in which one phrase can give rise to another. We've all read in programme notes things like this bridge passage leads to the second subject. What do you mean, leads? As we've heard, a phrase may be the result of a previous one. But equally, with Debussy, the link may be much more ambiguous. A phrase may interrupt what's gone before, play with it, contradict it, soften it, harden it. And the value of such ambiguity in a piece called The Sea hardly needs underlining. The notion that everything is fluid, ambiguous, open for development, even extends to what look on the page like perfectly respectable themes. As I said, Debussy recognised that there was a limit to an audience's patience with mosaic fragments. We all like a good tune. And he gives us one, The Song of the Sea, if you like. And it's even a conventional sixteen bars long. Good heavens, you may say, two eight-bar phrases. No, nine bars followed by seven bars. And over the top, he tells the conductor, get very gradually slower, and then come back bit by bit to your original speed. Good tunes, then, are safe from the all-pervading flux. There's another magical moment when that passage, like others before it, dies down. The chorale from the first movement returns on muted horns. Naturally, it's not an exact repeat. It's slow, and with barely any accompaniment, just deep rumblings from the lower strings, bassoons and contrabassoon, and a couple of high, wandering violins. atmospheric message, then, is one of magic and distance. But the structural message is quite different. The chorale at the end of the first movement resolved a feeling of drift. It was like a Wagnerian motive, full of suppressed energy, and it drove the music on to the movement's midday climax. But here it represents drift. As a result, we unconsciously wait for its resurrection at some later stage, as everything a chorale ought to be. Firm, symmetrical, decisive. One last look, though, at the way ambiguity infects every molecule of La Mer. The distant horn version of the chorale leads to a return of the song of the sea. Calm now, sunshine, possibly, a few high clouds. The essence of the texture is this. But on top of that, Debussy adds a sound which barely exists as itself, rather in the effect it has on the sounds below it. You don't hear it, and yet you do. A high violin harmonic, another of Debussy's miraculous touches, which transforms the orchestral texture. We've rather neglected so far any discussion of the dialogue of Debussy's title. I feel there is dialogue, in the general sense of conflict I mentioned, but also in one very specific detail, which, for me anyway, helps throw light on the problem all conductors of this piece have to resolve. Fanfares, or no fanfares? Here's the passage in question, leading up to the final drive to the end. This is what Debussy wrote in his original score, published in 1905. (music) Thank <music> you. Debussy had second thoughts about those fanfares. Early in 1908 he conducted La Mer in Paris and in London, and later that year he amended his score. So we only get the last half of the fanfares, and not quite all of that. A second edition of the score of La Mer came out the year after, 1909, and in this, Debussy took the fanfares out altogether. Why? One theory is they were too similar to a passage in Puccini's Manon but I think there may have been another reason. You may have spotted that the lead-up to the fanfares is indeed a dialogue, and between two ideas that have been with us since the very beginning of the whole work, the Scotch snap. and the wave's lament. At the very moment when the fanfares come in, these two basic ideas are combined. Oppositional dialogue is subsumed into a single phrase. It could be, Debussy realized that the fanfares got in the way of this crucial resolution of conflict. The rest of the orchestration is bare, just some held chords on the strings and the rest of the wind. For this brief but important moment of musical process, Debussy simplifies his complex texture. Here's the 1909 version without fanfares. <laughs> this point the song of the sea returns, and leads to the third and climactic appearance of the chorale. Is this an interruption, such as we've had so many times before, or a natural result? Even at this apocalyptic moment the exact nature of Debussy's syntax is still unclear. So from here on, at long last, doubts are cast aside, and this, I feel, is what La is ultimately about mankind's unquenchable desire to produce order out of chaos. Tunes may vanish under you, connections may be tantalisingly ambiguous, sounds may not mean anything in themselves, only in their effect on other sounds. The sea, calm one day, playful the next, may on the morrow be smashing large ships to atoms. The artist's job is to compose literally all these fragments into a coherent whole, by the exercise of what Milton called unconquerable will.